To be made in the image of God is as great a privilege as a creature could possibly be given. We are, in the words of Psalm 8, verse 5, crowned with glory and honor. We're designed to reflect God's own glory and honor into all of creation. It's an amazing privilege. The problem of sin, which has caused us all to fall short of the glory of God, of this glorious design that he made for us, the problem of sin has been decisively dealt with by the true human, our Lord Jesus. To say that Jesus has saved us from our sins, secured for us the forgiveness of sins, means that in Jesus, this glory, this honor has been restored. In Christ, through faith in Christ, we who are forgiven, we who are saved, find our true human identity. How can we be shaped then by the true humanity that is found in Jesus? Well, we need his body, don't we? He's the true human. And here we note the fact that in the New Testament, we find repeatedly that the church is called the body of Christ. Now, have you thought through all of what that might mean? We are meant to be shaped into the pattern of Christ through our communion with his body, his church. In fact, one of those passages that refers to the the church as the body of Christ, Ephesians 4, says this explicitly. Listen to what it says. God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers to equip the saints to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. So think it through. The church, the Christian community, the body of Christ is absolutely essential to what the Bible is actually getting at when it speaks about salvation. We need the church, the body of Christ, with all of its diversity to become the full human beings that Christ gave his life to make us. Now, not all churches have the same kind of ethnic or even socioeconomic diversity. Some local churches will be more diverse in these ways than others. But in every church, there will certainly be one kind of diversity that is critical to our pursuit of glory in Jesus. There will be in every church men and women, males and females. No true church can be a men-only church. No true church can be a women-only church. This is a diversity in the body of Christ that we must have in order to be shaped into the true humans we are meant to be in Christ. Now, why is that? 
Because the salvation from sin that Jesus achieved for humanity restores the peaceful partnership between men and women that reflects the self-giving love of God himself. Let me say that. That was a lot, right? So try to get this. The salvation from sin that Jesus achieved for humanity restores the peaceful partnership between men and women that reflects into all creation the self-giving love of God himself. So this is essential to our gospel witness. It is essential to the kingdom of God. Let's look at this together this morning as we notice first the ideal for humanity, second the fracture within humanity, and then lastly the restoration of our humanity. The ideal, the fracture, the restoration. First, the ideal for humanity. You know, if you want to know what the Bible's vision for humanity is, well, let's go to the beginning. Let's take a look at the original blueprint. Genesis 2, the passage that we're looking at this morning, gives us the blueprint. It shows us what humanity is meant to look like. Now, you know the story. In verse 7, I mean, you know, you've picked up your Bible, started by reading, you got to chapter 2, right? You've gotten that far at least. So you've read this probably over and over again. In verse 7 of chapter 2, we read that God first made uh, the male human being, put him into the Garden of Eden to, as verse 15 says, work it and keep it. Now, at the end of chapter 1, when God looked out at everything he had made, he said that it was very good, right? But here in chapter 2, in verse 18, God looks out and sees something that is not good. It is not good, he says, that this human being is alone. The ideal for humanity is that as God's image bearers, we are in a loving relationship with another in the same way that God himself is. We're made in the image of God, right? The triune God is the ideal for humanity. So the solitary human needs a partner. What does he need a partner for? (laughs) Well, I know plenty of jokes are primed at this point to make fun of just how stupid men can be, how much men need women for this or that. But here the important point seems to be that the human being will not be able to work the garden, keep the garden. He won't be able to fulfill his calling, his vocation, without a partner. It's not just that he won't do a very good job at, at it or that he'll just barely be able to get by. It's that by himself, this will be not good, not only for him, but for all of creation. This is not, as Pastor Jod might say, a suboptimal situation. For the human being to be alone is a positively bad situation. It's no surprise then that just this past May, the U.S. Surgeon General released an advisory calling attention to the public health crisis of loneliness, isolation, lack of connection, and the, attorney, the, the Surgeon General even said that this public health crisis increases, quote, 
the risk for premature death to levels comparable to smoking daily. It is not good that a human being be without a partner, be alone. So God knows that all the way back in the beginning. And he addresses the problem right here in verses 21 to 22, creating out of, a man, out of the man's rib a woman. Now, that's weird. That's strange. What is the story trying to tell us? What does it imply? It implies that this woman is made of the same stuff as the man. Back in chapter one, we were already told that the man and the woman are both made in the image of God. Genesis 1.27, God created man, that word there is the generic word, Adam. God created a human being in his own image. The gender-specific term comes later in the verse, male and female, he created them. The point is that the male human is made in the image of God, but so is the female human. They're made of the same stuff. Both genders are full image bearers on their own. Are they the same or are they different? And the answer is yes. (laughs) Again, this is meant to reflect God himself, the triune God. Each person is fully God, but there are distinctions within the Trinity too. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. Twice in our passage here in Genesis 2, in verses 18 and 20, we are told that the woman was made to be a helper fit for the man. Now, the Hebrew word that's translated here in the ESV, fit for, means like his opposite. Different? For sure. But not altogether different. She is his opposite in the way that you see yourself when you look in a mirror. The woman is the man's mirror opposite, his mirror image. And when he sees her, we get the first time in Scripture that the words of a human being are recorded. Genesis 2.23, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Did you notice in the story that what had just come before this, the man had just finished looking out at all the animal creatures, giving them names, but none of them are able to satisfy the problem of loneliness. A dog, and for some apparently a cat, might go a long way, but what we really need is someone much, much more like us. This is the ideal for humanity. Since we are made in God's image, God knows what we need. We need another who is not superior, but also not inferior, the opposite equal. That's what God has given us in making us all in his image, but making us male and female. Now, I hope by now that we understand that this whole story of God making human beings and making us in his image, and now, let's add to that, making us male and female, this whole story is not incidental to the gospel. 
to the story of salvation. It is central to it. The creation of humanity as male and female, as equal opposites, is designed by God to be the perfect reflection of who God himself is. So if in this story there's going to be conflict, no surprise that we will see that conflict precisely right here. The fracturing of humanity made male and female in the image of God is perhaps the principal illustration of the brokenness of sin. In the Gospels, when Jesus was asked about his views on divorce, he cited from our passage here in Genesis 2 and concluded this way. What therefore God has joined together Let not man separate. There can be no doubt then that Genesis 2 tells us something about marriage. But here's the thing. It is not primarily a marriage story. Did you know that? What we read here in Genesis chapter 2 when God creates the woman is not first a story about marriage. It teaches us something about marriage, absolutely, but only derivatively. Here's what I mean. If somehow we could read Genesis 2, the story, (laughs) what Ben just read to us, if somehow we could just read it for the very first time, you wouldn't conclude that what God set out to make for the man was his wife. It's not until we get to verse 24 that we find how the story relates to marriage. Why does the story relate to marriage? It's because when the man saw the woman, what did he say? This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. When the man speaks this way about the woman, he is basically saying, finally, here is someone just like me. This is someone who is related to me, closely connected to me. This is family at last. We can speak of Adam and Eve as husband and wife, but you get the sense before you get to verse 24, at least, that they are much more like a brother and sister. They share DNA. They are family bone of my bone, flesh of flesh. That, in fact, in the Old Testament is an expression that doesn't refer to marriage. It refers first to biological family. Now, my wife was not created from my rib. You're supposed to laugh right there. She doesn't share my DNA. But it is for this reason, the Bible says, that marriage is when a man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife. What reason? To become one flesh. That is, to begin a new family. Do you see that? So this passage has all sorts of implications for marriage. Of course it does. But don't you see? First of all, this passage has implications for all humanity. What we need above all is to belong. 
to be part of a family. And a family, right from the start, consists of male and female. More essential, far more essential, than a husband or wife is having a brother-sister-like relationship with another human being. Marriage is partnered or is patterned after that kind of a relationship. Now, when you get to the next chapter, Genesis 3, you got that far in your Bible reading? You learn quite quickly that sin evidences itself in the fracturing of the family. What happens when God questions the man about his sin? What does he say? (laughs) David's pointing. That one, that one, the woman whom you gave to be with me, it's her fault. It's Genesis 3.12. So because of our sin, partnership is fractured. Competition, blame becomes the name of the game between this sibling relationship. So now instead of seeing one another as partners because of sin, we often see each other as competitors. In a competition, we are trying to exert our power and our authority over another. It's fine for a sporting contest. You win the championship. You can kind of gloat a little bit. Yes? Wear a few hoodies. Wear a hat. Okay, I, I, I got to stop. But listen, this is devastating when men and women relate to one another in that way. Devastating for all humanity. When we try to prove who's the boss, who gets to decide everything, when that's the question we're after, this sense of competition, this is devastation for the family, for humanity. Because of sin, instead of seeing one another as a help, we often see each other as a danger. But God made the woman for the man to be his helper. That's the word that's used in these two verses. Now, this phrase, this word, does not mean that the woman's entire existence is for the man, helping him reach his goals. Plenty of Christians have read helper that way. But let me set the record straight. The word helper in the Old Testament is found 19 times. 16 of those are used in reference to God as our helper. Does God exist simply to help you meet all of your goals? That's not the way the word is used. To be a help means that you are strong, strong enough to deliver, to rescue, to save. In fact, many commentators today argue that the meaning of helper in Genesis 2, 18, and 20 is best translated as ally. Elise Fitzpatrick writes this, when God created the woman, he created her to be a strong help to her brother. She is a warrior who stands with him and is like him. She's his valiant sister in the battle, who is in alliance with him to rule and subdue the earth. But yet, because of sin, we sometimes even begin to view one another not just as a competition, a competitor, not just as a, as a danger, but sometimes we even begin to look at each other like we're enemies. If we can't subdue the other, then perhaps we'll just stay as far away as possible. 
Jesus' views on divorce, by the way, are what we today would might, probably would call a quite conservative view. But what Jesus actually said was quite radical in his day. You see, Jewish law did not permit a woman to divorce her husband and marry another, although it gave all kinds of possibilities for a man to do so. So when Jesus insisted that a man must stay married to his wife, he was leveling the playing field. That's why Jesus' own disciples gasped at his teaching and said this in Matthew 19.10, if such is the case of a man with his wife, well, it's just better not to marry. Now, let's just stay out of the marriage business altogether, right? Right? But that would be to play right into the hands of sin, which is eager to keep men and women separated and suspicious of each other as an enemy. (laughs) Now, as every married couple knows, marriage is incredibly hard work. There are all kinds of forces that seem to be threatening to break up our marriages in a thousand different ways. I want to say that although the Christian impulse and ethic is to fight for marriage to last, divorce is at times permitted and maybe even necessary. This sermon is not the time to discuss those particularities. What I'm trying to do instead is to say that the same kind of hard work that it takes to find unity in a marriage is what it takes to find unity as men and women in the Christian community. You gotta fight to keep marriages together, then listen, you gotta fight to keep men and women together in the Christian community. It is a good work, it is a necessary work. We must fight for it and never settle for less. You see, the gospel of the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus tells us that this is about as important to our Christian life and witness as anything else. Jesus gave his life to restore the glory to human beings as God's image bearers, male and female. Do you see that? He gave his life for this. It's critical then that Jesus' church makes it a priority to live in the reality of what Jesus gave his life to give us. So how can we do that? How do we begin to live in the reality of the restored humanity that we've been given in Jesus? First of all, a word about marriage. Marriage in the Christian community. Marriage is a good gift. It is a grace of God. Marriage is meant to be wonderful. If your marriage is not wonderful, get some help. But marriage must never be idolized in the Christian community. Marriage is not the most important reality in the Christian community. It is a reflection of the ideal. It is not the ideal itself. That's why Jesus, by the way, taught that marriage is a temporary arrangement. In Matthew twenty-two thirty, 30, he states rather straightforwardly that in the resurrection, there is no such thing as marriage because there'll be no need for it. Because, you see, 
in the resurrection, all the purposes for which marriage was created will be met in more satisfying and fulfilling ways. Someone right now is wondering, does that include sex? Yes. And if you can't imagine how that can be heaven, then consider what C.S. Lewis suggests, that perhaps that's because you and I are in the position like that of a little boy who on being told that the sexual act was the highest bodily pleasure should immediately ask whether you ate chocolates at the same time. On receiving the answer, no, he might regard absence of chocolates as the chief characteristic of sexuality. In vain would you tell him that the reason why lovers in their carnal raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think of. The boy knows chocolate. He does not know the positive thing that excludes it. You and I are in the exact same position. We know the sexual life. We do not know, except in glimpses, the other thing which in the resurrection will leave no room for it. So obviously we have not yet arrived at the resurrection. We still live in bodies that marry and are given in marriage. At the same time, Here's the point I'm trying to make. It cannot be emphasized enough that the Christian claim is that something of that future day has already broken in on this present age. That is the radical claim of Christianity. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Thank you. Somehow, I was hoping for an amen or something today. Get the tambourine going. We got to wake this church up, Carnita. Wake this church up. In Jesus, we see a glimpse of new creation. This is what explains then Paul's words in Galatians 3 when he says, There is now no longer Jew nor Greek. No slave or free, no male or female. Paul is not, of course, denying that such realities exist, but he's emphasizing that these realities are giving way to the greater reality of a new creation. They're passing away. Here's what he actually says in Galatians 3, 25 to 27. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Listen, for in Christ Jesus, you all are sons of God through faith. And then he says this, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You have a new identity. You have a new humanity. This is, I thought that was a helium balloon going off. This is now who you are. For those who profess faith in Christ, then here's what it means. You must begin to live in a new reality. Don't live in the old ways that are passing away. Begin to learn how to live in this new reality. That's what the first Christians believed. It's what invigorated their testimony and their witness. Just read the book of Acts 
with this is your perception, that the early Christians, the first Christians said, a new creation has broken in. Let's get rid of that old stuff. Let's start living in new realities. The historical reality of Jesus meant it's time to start imagining a new world. And indeed, it's time to start living in that reality. Now, figuring out what that means in this strange day we're in, this time between the times, the already of the kingdom of God and the not yet of the kingdom of God, that is what the Christian life really ought to mean. Now, the New Testament is, of course, our main guide. So no, this does not mean that Christians should no longer marry. Ephesians 5 gives direction into how Christian marriage is supposed to function. And Paul cites there from Genesis 2.25, showing that the marriage arrangement is still in force. At the same time, he follows up that citation by telling us that marriage remains in force for Christians for one primary reason, to point the way forward a bit more clearly to what is still coming. Just as marriage is based on the new family picture that we are given in the creation of Adam and Eve, so also marriage is meant to itself picture the new covenant reality of Christ and his church. So, I know, a lot of that just is all theoretical and maybe interesting. Let me close today by just being a pastor. Can I do that? Can I just speak to our church? I want to suggest a few things for us here at Crosstown. First, if the ideal for humanity is not husband and wife, but brother, sister, if that's the ideal, then in Christ, this is how we must learn to relate to one another as members of this family. We are family. We are brothers and sisters. By the way, this is how the Apostle Paul identifies the believers when he writes to the churches. Many English translations now are beginning to reflect that. Regrettably, the ESV, which is sort of our default text, only does it by way of a footnote. You'll see it. When it says brothers in the New Testament, there's a little footnote, look down, it says, or brothers and sisters. That actually should be how we translate it. So I'm gonna suggest to you, you start to live in this new reality, that we begin to use those titles of each other. Hey, bro! Might be common language for men today, Christian and non-Christian alike. It's kind of the way a lot of guys talk to each other. But brother and sister means something much, much deeper for those who are pressing into the kingdom story. It's not just a cute little way of referring to each other. It's actually who we are. Second, so I'm, so I'm just going to dare you today before you leave, to go up to somebody of 
not the same gender as you and call them brother or sister. I dare you. Challenge you. Okay, second. Sexual immorality within the church must be dealt severely for this reason. It destroys the family. You see that? But guarding against that temptation should never be done in a way that separates us from one another. Too many Christians resort to that strategy, and that's to fall into the hands of sin and devastation. We need each other, brothers and sisters. Brothers, your sisters need you to minister to them. Sisters, we brothers need you to minister to us. So, yes, we have our teams groups, and there is a place for same-gender discipleship. In fact, husbands and wives, one of the ways that you can minister to one another is by encouraging your spouse to go to teams. Hey, the guys your Mitchell family are meeting tonight. Hey, you need to go. Hey, the ladies in your Mitchell, our Mitchell family are meeting tonight. I got the kids. I'm cooking dinner. You need to go. But listen, we also need co-ed discipleship. We need our missional family gatherings and dinners. And by the way, when you gather as a missional family, don't just start grouping up with all the men over here and all the women over here. We need to interact with each other so that we learn to trust each other as brothers and sisters. Third, Crosstown is complementarian in that we believe that the Bible instructs that qualified men are to serve as pastors or elders in the church. Now, this sermon is not the place for us to discuss that conviction. I mean, I got 15 seconds left. But listen, the question about men, women, pastors, ordination must not begin by asking Who is in charge? Who gets to be the boss? Christians are cross-shaped people, or they are nothing. And bold Christian leadership in the home or in the church means self-giving love, the kind of love that initiates and seeks to lift up the other and see them flourish. Husbands, this is what it means to love your wife like Christ loved the church. Brothers, listen, I guarantee you that our sisters will not resist you leading if you lead like that. And for some of us, it's time that we stop letting our sisters do all the work in the church, especially in the preschool and children's ministry. I didn't look at the list. But if you, brother, if your wife serves in the preschool ministry and you say, nah, it's not my thing, you need to rethink that. 
How about in the hospitality services? That is not a, well, that's for the women to do. Wrong. We're brothers and sisters. We serve together. Brothers, be an initiator in your missional family and find a way to serve others instead of waiting to be served. By the way, brothers, while I'm at it, this is what it means to aspire to the office of an elder. It doesn't mean to aspire to be the person in charge. And this is also how elders ought to be known and characterized within the church. Would that every brother in this church would aspire to that noble calling. At the same time, we must not prevent women from exercising their gifts or act in ways that show that there is something about maleness that qualifies a non-elder man to serve instead of a woman. What would our church be like without you, sisters? What would our church be like without your gifts and your service? We thank God for you. You set the example for us in so many ways. And we bless you. In fact, as we close this morning, I want to express something of repentance as a church for any way in which we have been sending a message to you as our sisters that there's something about your femaleness that makes you less than or disqualified from serving here in our church. So here's one particular way. We, we're aware of really, this is the only place in which we have, the elders of this church are aware that we are being inconsistent that we are asked, that we've been for some time, well, for the entirety of our church's existence, that we have been uh, acting in a certain way that has communicated that a woman can't do, can't serve in this particular role simply because she's a woman. And what I'm referring to here is who stands at the front and serves communion. So the elders have always done that, but when our, not all of our elders are present, we have asked missional family leader men to stand up here. Not elders, but we've not allowed women to do it. So there are particular parts of our service that we view as pastoral responsibilities, so it's always an elder who does it. But standing here and handing out the bread to you is not one of those ministries, So this morning, for the very first time, wow, (laughs) you will be served the bread by one of our dear sisters, Peggy Leonard. She's shattering the glass ceiling this morning. (laughs) And we are going to be asking our missional family leaders, men and women, and our ministers, along with our elders, Uh, will be called upon to serve us communion. So that's what we're aiming for. We don't have this all right. I'm sure we're still missing things, but here's the point. Let us press on as brothers and sisters in Christ because 
Jesus gave his life to restore our humanity and to make us partners together, co-heirs of the grace of life. Let's pray. Now, Lord, help us and forgive us. One day, Jesus uh, had a couple of his disciples come and say, hey, I guess it was their, uh, these disciples' mother said, hey, grant that my sons would be able to sit on your right and on your left. One day, as Jesus was traveling, there was a little conversation among the disciples about who is the greatest. Huh. May we who say that we follow Jesus take to heart Jesus' words. The greatest among you will be the servant. The one who, like me, lays down his life, uses whatever power or authority that he may or may or she may or may not have and lays it down to see another flourish. I speak on behalf of husbands this morning. Forgive us, O Lord, for ways that we have grasped at power and authority in our homes instead of serving and lifting up our wives and seeing them flourish. Forgive us here at Crosstown in our church for any ways in which we have somehow communicated that brothers have a higher place in the kingdom of God than our, than our sisters. It's just not true. We're partners. We're heirs together, the grace of life. So we're trying to be obedient to your word, Lord. Convict us where we're wrong. Give us the grace to repent and to live in the reality of the kingdom of God that has broken in this present evil age. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.